Montez to throw. Down the left side to fade. LaVisca's in the end zone. Over the shoulder. Catch is made by LaVisca Chenault. Touchdown. Touchdown, Colorado. How do you cover that man? Between the hashes, moving left to right. Loopily, shotgun snap. Gives the inside handoff. And that thing is blowing up that time. Oh, what a play by Landman. I mean, as soon as it was handoff, Landman was right there. And you can hear the pads popping all the way up here in the broadcast booth. Holy cow, what a play. Takes a snap, dropping the throne. He's got time. Downfield, KD Nixon backpedaling, one-handed crab outside the 20 and the 15-yard line. Oh, what a catch by KD Nixon. Second down and for the 16. Coletta, play action. Hit by Terrence Lang, and he's sacked inside the 10 at the 9-yard line. Terrence Lang, there's no better-looking football player. Montez Fekana turns a corner, and there he goes. 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Steven Montez, holy cow, he had the fake, and he rolled out to his left, and he was so alone, it looked like he was late for school as he went trucking in. Welcome into another special podcast. I'm Adam Munster Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com, and today I'm pleased to be joined by former Buff Patrick Devaney, who's become a speaker on a topic that was largely undiscussed in the past, milled eating disorders. Patrick, thanks for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to connect again. It's been uh, it's been a few years, but I'm definitely excited to be back around. Awesome. We're coming to you today from Urban Mattress. If you live in the Denver area and are in need of a new mattress, be sure to stop by. Urban Mattress is located in Park Meadows area by I-25 and E-470. Use Go Buffs to get 20% off this month or... Next month? Sure. We'll or, okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Patrick, over the years, I've been fortunate to cover a lot of athletes that I really admire. You're definitely one of them. You came to see you as a quarterback, and it seemed like you kind of embraced having to take on a different role throughout your career there. <laughs> Luckily, Boulder, uh, I loved Boulder that much to truly embrace it. Um, yeah, it was definitely a crossroads after my freshman year of trying to decide whether or not to stay, to transfer, what to do. And I knew every day looking up at the flat irons and being in the business school and all that and, um, you know, the coaching change as well. There was a lot up in the air. But at some point, I just sat down. and was like, I don't I don't want to leave. I didn't want to go be a, a rookie somewhere else again and sit out and go through all that. And, um, yeah, I, I had really I had no choice. And I kind of just went for it. We're going to tackle a wide variety of topics on this podcast, but let's start from the beginning. Patrick, you were born in San Jose. Did you spend your whole childhood in Northern California? Yeah. So I, I was born in San Jose and then kind of bounced around Sacramento and San Francisco a few times. My parents got divorced when I was young. So uh, bounced around, but then I landed in junior high in outside of Sacramento. And we've had a few alumni come through now, but I ended up going to Granite Bay High School. And um, that was about 25 minutes outside of Sacramento. So I pretty much called that home. And then family still lives in the Bay Area and, and San Jose, but um, predominantly Northern California. And, and then after school, moved to Southern California. So I like to joke that I have pretty much the entire state covered. But yeah, Northern California growing up. And your father, Patrick Sr., actually played defensive end at UTEP. Is that correct? He did. It was UTEP. And then um, his like claim to fame was... 
He ended up transferring to Chico State back when they had a football program and was O-lineman with uh, Aaron Rodgers' dad. So they were pretty close to the time, and it's kind of been brought up a few times throughout <laughs> my playing career. But uh, yeah, so Chico State and UTEP. So was football always kind of a part of your life growing up? When did you start really taking that on as a, as a competitive challenge? It's So it's funny. I think from... When I was a newborn, I have a photo where I, I literally have a Oakland Raiders football in my hand, uh, not by choice. <laughs> so it was kind of ingrained in me, but my mom actually never let me play. I got to play flag football when I was in junior high, and she refused to let me play until freshman year of high school. And it was against the grain. All my buddies played peewee and all the above, but she just refused to let me do it. And looking back, I'm extremely grateful for that because I felt like, a lot of my buddies that grew up playing as a young kid and whatnot kind of got burned out throughout the years. And so by senior year, it was only my fourth year playing. And I was kind of still riding the wave and loved it. And um, so, I, yeah, it was definitely ingrained in me. And, and it was one of those things where, it, although I wasn't allowed to play it, it almost grew a love and a passion for it even more because I would just sit on the sidelines, really sit on the sidelines and <laughs> want to play. So it took a while to finally hit the field. But once I did it, was just a, a passion right away. I was just in my second year covering CU recruiting when you were going through your recruiting process. I remember talking to you quite a few times throughout that. If memory serves, Arizona was a school you were pretty high on, Colorado, and was it Dave Borbley, former CU offensive line <laughs> yeah. coach that, that recruited you to Boulder? It was, yeah. It came down between Cal, Arizona, and CU. And Cal was too close to home. Arizona was just way too hot. <laughs> and uh, Borbley and Coach Barnett and Sean Watson um, came out to visit. And my family threw a big dinner. And it was just like the most I – I just felt like everyone was at home and right away. So they were actually the first school to offer me. And as soon as I got it, I jumped on it my summer of going into my senior year. And I had never even been to Boulder. So everyone I just spoke to was like – what Colorado like absolutely like go and so I had committed and then came out on a trip and we beat CSU that year on a fourth and goal at Boulder um in Folsom and it was just game over at that point I completely just stopped opening any sort of mail or correspondence from anybody because CU is it what's on the table when you have CU coaches in your house going through the recruiting process and so yeah we had my grandma my nanny came over and did a full Italian platter and cake and dessert and all that stuff and i actually have a photo of my grandmother feeding like spoon feeding coach barnett a piece <laughs> of cake that i sent him a little while ago that just it meant the world to me looking back on that it was so cool you probably expect to play for gary barnett through your career when you commit to them i would imagine <laughs> yeah yeah i think the best piece of advice that i've ever received i had a granite bay was relatively new but we were also somewhat i don't want to say a powerhouse but we were pretty dominant in northern california so we had a lot of kids go on to play in the nfl and um, d1 and one of my mentors was a linebacker at usc and he was a senior in high school when I was a freshman. And the, when I started to get recruited, the best piece of advice that he ever gave me or really anyone ever gave me was never pick a school based on the coaches. And it's so tempting to do. And you're, you know, they're sending you all these images with your name on it and blah, blah, blah. But he's like, dude, you never know if they're going to be there or not. So when you get into campus, go sit in the cafeteria and think to yourself, can you be there for five years? And 
that played into Arizona. It was like, absolutely not. It's too hot. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to practice at 5 a.m. And, uh, when I got to see you and you sat there in front of the flat irons, I think, you know, we touched on it, but that was a big component. Once I got there, I was so settled on Boulder itself because of that piece of advice. And, and as much as I wanted and hoped and expected, I mean, we were, see, was good. We won the Big 12 North, I think, four to five years leading up to that. And whatever the stat was at the time, it just it didn't seem really like it was going to be an option that after the first year he'd be gone um, and out the way he did. But um, thankfully, I was in, in for the long haul with Boulder. So it was a transition for sure. When you took your official visit, do you remember the route they took you into Boulder? Because I always <laughs> wonder that. Are they bringing these guys through Commerce City or are they – going just I-70 to, to avoid that stretch? Because that's not exactly the first impression you want to make on a recruit coming in. That's yeah, really funny you said that. Yeah, no, we for sure took the toll road. And I think, but the number one thing, it's almost like they set you up, which looking back, I would have done the same thing, right? Like you get off a of DIA, I'm from California. So I'm like, wait, this is Denver? <laughs> like, where are we? Yeah. And then I get on the toll road and you're just seeing industrial smokestacks. And you're like, what? I don't know where I'm going. And then all of a sudden you pop out by Flatirons, the mall, and you're like, okay, well, there's civilization. And then you hit the, if anyone's been out to Boulder, you know, you get right over yeah. 36 at that lookout point. So that is you know, it's like they set you up for 30, 40 minutes, and then all of a sudden you hit that, and you're like, okay, I'm home. Like, it's a game over. And they purposely drive really slow over the hill yeah, and let course. you take your Instagram photos and blah, blah, blah. Well, we didn't have Instagram when I was doing that. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they were strategic with it. But that's really funny. I, that was the first thing that went through my head with my parents. I was like, this is Denver? Like, what? Where are we? And then you hit Boulder, and it's, it's just a game over right out the gates. Now it's so much on social media with the graphics and everything as far as recruiting goes back then you would get kind of creative graphics in the mail, right? That's kind of how they try to get your attention initially. Yeah. I think, um, looking back, it was, it was actually, you knew things started to get serious when it was a handwritten letter. And outside of that, I mean, I've seen some of this stuff now where they're cropping the photo of the face on the Jersey and you know, you're wearing the CU color, like blah, blah, blah. We didn't really have that. I think I think it was like maybe a uh, just a blacked out CU jersey with like my name on the back. Uh, but still, I mean, it was super special. But I think once you get that handwritten letter from a coach, that just started to mean the world. And so um, that was kind of their version of new technology back then. You set nine school records at Granite Bay, including career touchdown passes and total yards. Won a couple league championships there. Were a team captain, all area MVP. What? memory stand out most when you think back to your prep career there was yeah we had so many good games so many good um so many amazing accomplishments there was one that sticks out um i think probably because i'm a perfectionist but i there was a play where we were on like our own three yard line and we used to have this audible that if there was no nose tackle over the center i could tap the center and didn't matter what the play was he would just lead block for me and we would just try to get a few extra yards. Well, I ended up going about 96 yards spun out of it somehow. And there, there was actually a kid I played with named Sammy Strotter who played at Oregon state. And, 
um, played in the NFL, and we collided about 20 yards deep. And the smart move would have just been to hand the ball off to him because he was obviously a pure athlete, and I ran with the piano on my back. And uh, I get to the one-yard line. I'm one yard away, and I get pulled down from behind. And so I go 96 yards, don't score. And it, I think as embarrassing as it was, it was actually one of like the pinnacle points of the season just because everyone, I mean, I didn't mind taking the heat for it and getting made fun of. But looking back, it was something that just brought everyone together. And I wish I would have dove or handed the ball to Sammy and scored. But... Um, for whatever reason, that's just the one play that always sticks out because it was just so hilarious to go back and watch that footage and be like, dude, really? You were so close. Like, what? You enroll at CU in, in 2005 and practice at quarterback while red shirting. Was it your second year in Boulder that you moved to tight end? Do you remember when you made that move? I, yeah, oh, I for sure do. Uh, it was a spring ball. So all of a sudden, you know, Klatt's gone and new coaching staff, and it kind of felt like the all the opportunity was in front of me and I admittedly had one of the worst spring balls. What well, was my first ball, but one of my first couple months of just terrible performance. And I was so blessed in California where I had so many amazing quarterback coaches and just to have that consistent, you know, rhythm. And now I went from Sean Watson to Mark Helfridge a new system, new everything, um, putting this pressure to get out there and, and start, and it just went so bad. And simultaneously, Cody, who's a good friend now, but um, I didn't know anything about him. I just knew he was the head coach's son, yeah. um, committed. So then there was extra pressure. And I'll never forget walking into Coach Hawkins' office and uh, kind of for the end of spring ball uh, meetings before you go home for your month of May. And they were like, you know, what do you, what do you think about tight end? And I, it didn't catch me by surprise because of how bad I had played that spring, um, at least in my own mind. And part of me, I think somehow, some way, I was just always a larger guy and it was always kind of, you know, there's a chance you could play tight end. Like, and it wasn't a recruiting thing. It was just people would always make that comment. So it really didn't catch me by surprise. But that was where I had to go home that month of May and really kind of iron out, like, do I want to stay? Do I want to transfer? How committed am I to quarterback? All that kind of stuff. But it was in that transition. And then I spent the next two years basically trying to learn tight end. But then due to injuries and whatnot, I kept getting pulled back to kind of second string. I remember being at Kansas um, my redshirt freshman year and go into the locker room at halftime. It was either Jane, it was either. Somebody got hurt, and we had no backup for B-Jack, Bernard Jackson. So they switched me jerseys in the locker room at halftime, and I'm all of a sudden now I'm backup quarterback. And I'm like, so it was such a rough transition uh, physically and mentally. But, yeah, it basically happened that spring ball in my freshman year. You joke that you run around like a with a piano on your back, but yeah. – I think you ran an 11-3 in high school in the yeah, 100, right? I did. Yeah, that's yeah. So I did. It was actually the reason we have that stat is because that play was actually my junior year that I referenced where I got 96 yards instead of 97 for a touchdown. And that spring, my quarterback coach made me go out and run track. And our track team was phenomenal. We had Sammy and all these guys that like I don't know how far they went in state with their 4 by one but I was on like the 4 by one D team. Um but it was the best thing I've ever done because it, it really, I started to grow into my body athletically and it really sort of forced that 
<laughs> growth. Um, so there was a big jump going into my senior year, but I don't think I ever actually competed in a track meet because I was like, well, I'm, I'm on the D team. Like, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't fun. But from a practice standpoint, yeah. So I, I think I was a little bit more hard on myself, but uh, in my senior year, it definitely started to improve and, and quite frankly, just started to grow into my body. Were you ready to let go of quarterback? You mentioned that you had to go home and, and think about it. Were you 100% in on tight end when you, you started that, or was there a small part of you that was still kind of holding on to being a quarterback? Yeah, it was totally bittersweet. Um, I think it was harder for my family to give up than it was for me, I think. Part of me, again, I was just so grateful to be in Boulder, so happy to be in the business school. And it was just there was a part of me that – was like okay fine if if this really doesn't work then i'm gonna get my degree and and get out of here and um i think i was okay with that until a little bit later on where you it's hard to not look back like the what if game what if i would have stuck with it what if i would have played what could have happened all that kind of stuff and you really i just can't let my mind go there because i'm not going back to go play under tucker anytime soon so so no, uh, no Uncle Rico moments. Yeah, I wish. I, I've checked my eligibility a few times, and uh, I just don't think it's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely bittersweet. And then especially, you know, when I'm asked to go be a backup all of a sudden, and like, okay, maybe this is my chance. And, you know, you hear those cliche stories and um, and whatnot. But I really had to kind of backburner those thoughts and just let tight end play its play its role. How much weight did you have to put on in order to play tight end at CU? Yeah, I think my... Starting the spring, or after, I guess, the summer, going into my redshirt freshman year, I was about 215. And when it was all said and done, going into, like, pro day, or uh, getting up to Seattle my senior year-ish, I was somewhere between 250 and 260. Um, But there was a, a... kind of a mad scurry to gain about 20 pounds. So I want to say probably my freshman or sophomore year, I was up to about 240 pretty quick. And so I had to gain about 25 pounds, 30 pounds, um, as quick as I could. How many calories a day are you eating when you're in in a program like that? And how monitored and structured is that whole program? Yeah, so I'll I'll preface that by saying I think a lot has changed um, from the strength coaches and the dietitians and um i think when i really started to calculate how much i was eating when i really cared and started to become obsessed with that kind of stuff i was close to about six thousand calories a day eating healthy quote quote unquote the healthy way the chicken breast brown rice and broccoli and at six thousand calories that's a lot of food um but there was definitely the, in that transition, especially freshman year, I was just like, I don't really care what I'm eating. Like, I'll just have the pizza and whatnot. So um, it tra- it slowly turned for me um, as time went on. But out the gates, I mean, it was consistently probably five or 6,000 calories a day. You caught your first pass as a buff during your sophomore season in 2007. You got to dress for the Independence Bowl, which sadly is the second to last bowl game the buffs have competed in. It's crazy to say that. Yeah. What was the turning point for you as a tight end? I would say it probably had to be um, West Virginia. I think when we played West Virginia at home. That was a pretty magical night. Yeah, it was. And I ended up, I was fortunate enough to catch a touchdown pass that game. And there's just some photos looking back that um, were so 
phenomenal when you see it was a blackout game on ESPN, kind of all the above that checks every box as kind of a player's dream. And we ended up winning in overtime. And just looking back on that, it was like all of a sudden the years, I think that was my junior year, I had three years of really tough transition that it finally started to feel like it was paying off. Um, Even that my first catch in 2007, that happened, which actually ended up, it was a touchdown. So my first catch was a touchdown, but it was because Tyson DeVry got hurt with a concussion. And I don't even know if he meant to grab me, but Coach Ridd, our tight ends coach, just like turned, grabbed me, was like, you're in. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Like I remember Cody was like, run a, a flat route. And I just happened to be open. So it was still like I knew I had a lot in front of me and, and trying to get that transition complete. So I would looking back, it's definitely that West Virginia game. You ended up playing and seeing action in all 24 games as an upperclassman in 2008, 2009. Thinking back, you know, unfortunately didn't get to play in a bowl game either of those two years. But what are some of the better memories that you have those two seasons? Honestly, I think um, – there was a, just so many amazing away games that to have an opportunity to go play at some of these other schools too. And obviously playing in Boulder, you know, I don't want to say you take it for granted and, and you go back there now and you're just blown away with the atmosphere and, and whatnot. But playing at schools like Nebraska and Texas and Oklahoma, I mean, when we were playing at Texas and we lost in the fourth quarter, um, I'll never forget that game as well where – you just look back at running out in front of a hundred thousand fans. There's, it's hard to beat, and especially when I know it's it's tough to say it. But when you lose in the fourth quarter on a last minute play, and that stadium erupts, and yeah, you're disappointed and all that stuff in the moment, and you're pissed. And but looking back and realizing, man, I couldn't even hear the guy next to me, and how cool of a moment that is, and and having those memories. Um, just the some of the our schedule was just ridiculous back in the big 12 days of um some of those elite teams that it made up a little bit for not making bowl games bowl games are obviously so fun and special but um it helped being in such a a, an amazing league were there any rude fan bases out there (laughs) yeah so i think uh one of the most unique ones not rude but i always look back at that independence bowl we show up in shreveport louisiana and i'm like where are we (laughs) and i'll never forget it we had um and i don't blame it but there was a very little cu following there um but our entire fan base our fan section was sold out because it was all fans wearing purple and gold because it was all LSU fans that hated Nick Saban. Obviously with Nick Saban leaving LSU and all that kind of stuff. And I remember running out and everyone being like, what? Like it was the loudest home game I've ever had because it was all LSU fans. Um, so that was pretty special. But schools like Nebraska, when you're, when you're walking out and at least it used to be roped off and their fans are pushing you or at Missouri was another terrible one. Cause it's a long walk and you're walking under the overhang. So people are spitting down on you and it's just, uh, it's a <laughs> intense, um, crowd. Iowa state was tough. Um, yeah, there was fans can be brutal for sure. And the atmospheres can just be, <laughs> make it a whole new level. When you came to see you bowl game appearances were expected by the 100%. fan base. Did, did you see a culture shift or anything that led you to believe there might be tough seasons for, for CU on the horizon, or did it 
really catch you by surprise. <laughs> yeah, when we lost to Montana State, I think that first game with Hawk, and you know, I don't, I don't blame him for the comments, but I know he promised a national championship and and whatnot. And all of a sudden, we come out, and, and that game actually meant a lot to me because Montana State's the kid who actually was a star of that game went to high school with me. Oh, okay, and so he uh, he beat me up a little bit for that one. Uh, you know, it was a home game, first game with Hawk, and we just come out and get smacked in the face. And um, I don't want to say that derailed us. I think it just kind of all took us by surprise. That's a game we should never have lost. You know, the year before, yeah, we lost big time, but we had a concussion with Cloud. We were in the Big 12 championship game. So all of a sudden you get smacked in the mouth like that and you're, you're kind of speed wobbling, trying to figure out what is happening. New coach, new system, new everything. And um, we knew we were, our backs were against the wall at that point. And then, you know, consistently not making a bowl game, it became more and more difficult. And we also, I look back on that time though, and a lot of fingers are pointed about how bad we were. But if you really take a look, I mean, we never had an easy game. Kansas was somehow good when, when I was there. Iowa State was good. K-State had, you know, Freeman. There was a lot of NFL talent on all those teams that what used to be kind of walks in the park game, like all of a sudden weren't. And we just, we never had an easy schedule. Um, and there was no games that were going to be given to you in the Big 12 when I was there. At least we always felt like that. And so every game was a competition. And um, yeah, it was, it was a, a tough thing to go through. Having that experience of the Montana State game, when you saw CU have that issue with Oregon State and kind of the collapse last year, were you having a uh-oh moment because of knowing what a, a loss like that can do to a football team, especially when you're dealing with college-age kids? No question. Yeah, and especially because knowing how young they were. Um, you know, when we were there, we had some, against Montana State, we had some really powerful leadership. I mean, you're looking at guys like Tyler Columbus, Ryan Walters, Jordan dies on all these guys. And looking back um, at the Oregon State game last year, it's still a young team and still, you know, they, they definitely had great leadership and whatnot. But it's a, uh, it's a tough thing when you're all of a sudden looking at that being like, that's going to be hard to bounce back from. And, and primarily because you're really looking at players to not point fingers at the offense, looking at the defense and playing the blame game and coaches doing it and, and that kind of stuff. And there's so much involved, you know, I think from a fan base, especially now being removed, it's hard to not fall in the traps of like, why didn't they just do this? And when you're in the moment, you're realizing these are one 18 to 22 year old guys that have school families, girlfriends. Like it's not just get out there and play on Saturday. It's you're really trying to figure out life. Like, Think about the standard person that's 18. You're asking them to go out and, and perform in front of 100,000 fans. And there's few guys that can do it dominantly. But a lot of these guys that uh, have to deal with travel and, and even being on the travel squad and all that kind of stuff that really weighs into that equation of what makes a good team. And um, so it, it's, yeah, as soon as Oregon State happened, it was like, oh, boy, how are they going to bounce back? Going back to your career as a senior at CU, the coaches honored you with the Gold Group Commitment Award, which is given to players that showed a commitment to all-around excellence. Once you had played in your last game at CU, did you immediately begin training for the NFL? How did that transition period go for you? Yeah, right away. I, uh, <laughs> I, I packed up my stuff, and I moved in with Scotty McKnight's parents in Orange County, um, which I tell Scotty this all the time. His parents were by far my best roommates uh, that I've ever had. And um, 
I lived with Scotty for a few years, so I love to jab him with that. But um, yeah, moved to Orange County and started working out with an amazing group of guys down there. Um, I was actually I was working with my agents down there, and we had guys like Dennis Pitta, Aaron Hernandez, um, Sean Canfield, quarterback from Oregon State. Um, Zach Robinson from Oklahoma State. It was just such a tremendous group, but yeah, I mean, we had basically two or three months to turn it around and go from you know you're beat up from season to all of a sudden you got to be out there at pro day and as fast as you can be and as strong as you can be. So yeah, it went from zero to sixty really quick. I think I stayed for graduation and then literally that night drove out to California to start training. Talk more about that. What What is the whole process of preparing for the NFL like? Do you feel like it's more trying to get times versus playing actual football? How, how do you get yourself ready for that stage of your, your career? Yeah, I think it's an inter- it was an interesting thing for me because I was kind of a hopeless romantic. I had gone from a transition to tight end where I, I don't want to say I wrote off football, but the thought of going – from quarterback to where it was illegal to hit me to now I'm being asked to be the point man on plays. Like I couldn't block to save my life. Um, to then my junior year, West Virginia, and things started to kind of switch for me a little bit and playing. And I was, you know, first couple years, like, am I even going to travel? I don't know. And so then to have this glimmer of hope of making it to the NFL it was a lot of pressure and as opposed to even in the case of somebody that is a stud now they're competing to be a first round draft pick right so it's still kind of the same path um and it's yeah it's interesting where you literally get up and everything you're doing is designed for the drills you're going to do at either pro day or the combine like you're literally mastering your the amount of steps you're going to take on this l drill or your stance in the 40 yard dash that when in the world was I ever actually running 40 yards or when did I need to get out the blocks in a certain way, all that kind of stuff. It, it almost feels like you're cramming for a final, you know, and, and finals week for something you're never going to use again. And it's just like, yeah, this helps, but I'm not really doing anything. Or when do I, you know, why am I focused on trying to get over 20 reps on bench press? When, when am I ever going to be doing that in a game? So it's, it's kind of these like bizarre test and um, measurements for performance that you kind of sit back. But if you can master it, and some of these guys are just natural freaks, and all of a sudden, you know, they're jumping 40 inches, and you're like, wait, I'm going to go over here on this banded, you know, squat rack and try to help with my vertical jump, you know? So it's, it's really interesting, but it is also it's it's addicting you wake up and you're literally just living your dream you don't have school all you're doing is going to the gym going out to the field running routes running you know your 40 yard dash and then going to the beach for me living in california so you're going to the beach and just hanging out you're going to get a massage and rehab and recover and you don't really have this concept of like okay what's my nine to five going to be it's you're just like man if i can make this work and this is my lifestyle absolutely count me in so how does it evolve with the seattle seahawks does the draft end and then your agent is calling out to different teams or vice versa how does that whole process work yes yeah, so they were supposed to um that was that was the case i had you know I, I had a lot of friends that year that were getting drafted or whatnot and um so i watched the entire draft but i didn't expect my name to get called and literally right as the draft ended my phone rang and i heard 
kind of a horror story from somebody along the way that was like, yeah, if a coach ever calls, like you take it, you don't hesitate. They don't have time for you to hesitate. So if you get a phone call, you I'm in like no questions about it. So that was in the back of my mind and my phone went off and I was like, I don't, I don't know this number. I don't know who this is. So I answer it and it was John Snyder, the GM for Seattle, who was previously in green Bay and he had come out to a practice, and I'll never forget this, um, an assistant coach. We had a GA, Skylar Fulton, who was just with the Tampa Bay Bucks um, as a coach. They were really close, and John Snyder kind of saw me during practice and was like, who's this kind of guy? And I think I fit that mold a little bit for Seattle. That was kind of an under-the-radar, maybe we could do something with them athletically. And so I get this phone call, and I answer. He's like, this is John Snyder from Seattle Seahawks. I have Coach Carroll here. We want you to come up are you in? And I was like, I wanted to say, I talked to my agent. I don't know what to do. I don't know to negotiate. I don't know. I was like, absolutely. I'm in. Let's go. Put me on the next flight. And, uh, it was always a dream of mine to play for coach Carroll. It was actually a really weird opportunity for me because I had, like I said, I had a few buddies that played at SC and just knowing him and him as a coach, I had always said I would do anything to play for coach Carroll. So, I don't know where I could have gone. I don't know what my agent was doing. I don't know any of that stuff. Somehow they got my number and I just jumped on it and took it and <laughs> didn't and didn't look back. And I was so grateful. Honestly, if, if there was a list of teams out there, I would have probably gone to Seattle no matter what. That's awesome. Did you get a chance to do mini camps, practice with them? What was uh, your your tenure with the as a member of the Seahawks? Like? Yeah, I had a few cups of coffee, um, and then I had a plane flight home. But uh, no, I went up there for a few mini camps, and it was unique because generally you start with like a rookie mini camp, and then you go to you enter, you know you're with the entire team a few weeks later. But because it was Coach Carroll's first year. They a first year head coach is allowed instead of a rookie mini camp, it's an entire team. So when I showed up, it was like not only am I meeting these, you know, Earl Thomas was up there and a bunch of these guys that I had played against, but I'm also meeting Matt Hasselbeck and the all the vets. And that was my first experience at the at the gates, which was I'm trying to figure out where the locker room is, let alone the plays and what to do. And um, so it was so intense and was up there through the summer leading into training camp and then they needed to bring in another quarterback and because of the roster limits I was last man out and uh it was an interesting time though I think coach Carroll set the NFL record for offseason transactions or something like 200 transactions that year so every day was like a carousel of guys just in and out and obviously he's had amazing success with his philosophy and molding the team the exact way he wants it um and then when I got sent home, I was out training like a week or two afterwards, and I ruptured a tendon in my wrist, which I had actually hurt at K-State, um, but we didn't, couldn't figure out what was wrong. And when my tendon snapped, I called you know CU, and luckily Miguel and those guys were like, come back out, let's look at it, and we did surgery. But then at that point, I was out for six months and I just knew at that point the career was over. No one was going to wait around for me. I wasn't, you know, a first round pick that could just be put on IR. So, um, I had hoped to get, try to try to get picked back up. Uh, but once the tendon was done, it was a game over for me. Were you mentally prepared for your football career to, to end at that point? I thought I was, I, you know, I think again, there's a lot of weird things that happened during that time, but my transition out of CU I looked at it as I was well connected. I was I did great in school, graduated from the business school. 
just kind of assume jobs would, I would figure it out. And, um, simultaneously, Jeremy Bloom and Sean Tufts were named to Forbes 30 under 30. And obviously that's such an accomplishment, let alone if you have one player, an alumni on that list, it's a big deal, but to have two ex football guys, you know, transition into that list, I was just told myself like, Oh, I'm going to make that list. Like it's an easy thing. We're, athletes it's gonna happen so then all of a sudden i wake up though and it's a monday morning and i'm like oh now what do i do with life like where do i go a business degree didn't necessarily help me only because i didn't have a niche like it was like i literally could do anything with this degree i wasn't just fine i was a marketing major so it could go anywhere so i thought the transition would be really easy and it was very awakening all of a sudden really quick you just wake up and you're like i i don't have practice to be at i don't have a strength coach to report to i have no one telling me where to go and it hit me pretty hard out the gates really quick you talk about that structure you have as a football player and you're also eating a ton of calories you talked about how much you had to eat in order to gain that weight you look at it especially with linemen it's like when they stop playing football they're either going to lose a lot of weight really quick or it's going to turn to bad weight and it's going to be a bad situation was your goal when you hung up the cleats from a physicality standpoint to try to kind of keep the physical stature and physique that you had during your playing days? Yeah. I, so I think to your point, yeah, you definitely, and I've seen it literally time and time again with guys is either they get overly obsessed and try to lose a ton of weight for a hundred different reasons, or they're just like, look, I'm done. I don't ever want to step in the weight room again. I don't ever want to do any of this stuff. Like I just want to relax. And for me though, and I think what happens to a lot of athletes pretty much any athlete is when you're done playing there's a loss of identity and when i got done playing i was living with my you know best friends and so i had my surgery and then right after surgery scotty moved back home we scotty and i lived together again in orange county and we're kind of in and out and he was playing he ends up going to the new york jets all of us are living down in orange county and i'm transitioning in this weird kind of role of my best friends are still playing in the NFL and here I am trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And so I dove into the path of I'm going to lose a ton of weight. So if I'm not in the NFL, I better look my best and look like I'm in the NFL. So I needed to be as lean as I could, as big as I could. I didn't have to worry about my 40 yard dash, but at the same time, like that was my only sort of comfort zone and my anchor of the only thing I could control in my life was my physique. So it really started to become an obsession um, and a comparison game because nowhere else could I compare to these guys other than, okay, I'm going to be the hardest worker in the gym because that's all I knew. You know, that's what football really prepared me for. So um, me personally, I think I went from 260 back down to like 215 really quick in extreme in extreme dieting yeah. approaches do you think uh, an eating disorder was kind of simmering below the surface before that or was it the identity crisis you had when you stopped playing football that began that issue for you yeah so i think that's an interesting part about about athletics is it's hard to really diagnose what came first but i firmly believe um it was probably my junior year of college that I really started to categorize foods as good versus bad. And that is kind of a beginning, beginning of the end. Um, because once I started to find myself in positions of like, Oh, I can't eat that. I can't eat the chips at 
Chipotle and they're like, why not? And you're like, well, it's bad for you. It's like, well, is it like, that's a whole nother, that's the first scientist to discuss, but that really started to put me in a weird position. And most of the time people look at it as like, Oh, you're super disciplined. But then when I really started to cut and that loss of identity really triggered what was a simple eating clean approach to all of a sudden, now that's my identity. And the only thing I really could control was my food? Am I working out? So that loss of identity really triggered what would later become, a, for sure, a full-blown eating disorder, um, despite the fact that I looked healthy, looked great, was working out hard. Um, it disguises itself really well. When you were dropping that weight down to 215, is that when you started fasting? Yeah. Yeah. So I started to do, I mean, sort of any cliche diet that's been out there, intermittent fasting to, you know, paleo, whole 30, any of that kind of stuff that, um, really the end game is just reducing calories, right? What's going to be your trick. And for me, um, fasting where you don't eat for 16 hours and you eat for eight worked for me because I was so hungry that I could manage to not eat for so long and then completely overeat at my meals because I was finally eating. So my body's like, yeah, give me everything. And I had, you know, 3000 calories to all of a sudden just eat in about 10 minutes and it felt so good. So it was this kind of crazy cycle that becomes addicting. Um, so that was definitely where diets and extreme workouts really started to ramp up and started to really define who I was. But you're not fasting and then eating pizza or, or fast food. Walk us through a day in your life in that period in terms of kind of what you're eating. Yeah, so this is kind of what was crazy. I think to put it hand in hand with the the working out to really paint the picture because from anybody that looks back on it or even during the time, everyone saw me as a super fit, dedicated man. And what would happen is I would get up every day at 4 a.m., um, go to the gym from call it 5 to 7 and not eat during that before or after. So I'd go to the gym, work out extremely hard, then get ready for work, go to work, and I would only have black coffee or water. Um, That's kind of the rules of intermittent fasting. And then at noon, I would have my first meal, which would generally be pretty small, So, which would kind of work for me just structurally because I was at work, and I was like, okay, cool, I have time to do this, and then get back to work. Then have another snack at about 3 p.m. And then um, get home and make this gigantic dinner. That was just basically right around 3,000 calories worth. And, and it was very clean eating. So it was a, so much food. And I needed to do that because as soon as I was done eating, I was done eating for the night. And that was my rule. It didn't matter what you tempted me with. It was I was so disciplined in that. But I wasn't going to eat until noon the next day. And so it had to be this huge meal to kind of go to bed feeling like I was full and satiated and, and whatnot, only to repeat that cycle. And it's, it's tough out the gates when you're working out that hard to not eat you know, for another seven hours. Um, but it just becomes your everyday routine. And that's what I did. I did that for about four or five years, um, pretty aggressively, an intensive uh, diet like that. And sooner or later... I just couldn't maintain it anymore. But at the time, I mean, people would just look at me and be like, dude, I wish I had your discipline. And I thought it was a good thing too, but it ultimately backfired on me. At what point do you realize it's a problem and realize that you need help for it? 
Yeah. So there was a transition of, um, I think kind of a perfect storm of, I started to realize that my, and when people think of eating disorders, it's generally, um, you know, a skinny female and I didn't suffer from that obviously. Instead I had, I looked great, acted like I felt great, but the bigger issues in my mind come into play when I was avoiding life's events, right? Like I wouldn't, I would be scared or potentially not even go. Most of the time I wouldn't even go to like a best friend's birthday party because I knew I'd be around the foods that I didn't want to be around or around the environments or if it was a brunch and I'm like, I'm not eating until 12 and I don't want to go there and have to explain why I'm not eating and blah, 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 that you kind of just start to isolate yourself. And I started to get super isolated. And then at the same time in 2015, my mom passed away unexpectedly. So when life threw that curveball at me, I really kind of spun out of control and would try to not eat all day. But then binging became a really big thing at night because it was kind of my coping mechanism for my mom's passing. I don't really drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. So my vice was food. And so then all of a sudden I would, I became to a point where I would not eat all day. And then at about 10 o'clock, tell myself at PM, like, I'm going to eat healthy tomorrow, get back on track, and then only to eat four to five boxes of cereal literally every single night for about four months. And it just became so unbearable and way too much. And it sounds so far-fetched, but it literally was my everyday cycle that finally I just knew something as, as obvious as obvious as it may seem now at the time I was just like trying to deal with death and trying to deal with where am I at in life and all these like things I couldn't control and had no true foundation in my life that um, food was my vice and my mechanism of trying to control any of that kind of stuff so once it finally felt like I hit rock bottom I knew I had to get out and, and try to seek help for sure and how difficult was it to start eating normally again and what was that process like yeah that was interesting so i i couldn't have been more relieved to actually get help and realize that this life that i was living and this crazy cycle that i was in was actually something that doctors diagnosed as bulimia and so then it it became less about me and this thing that is diagnosable that it wasn't just me going crazy and so i I'll never forget and I think being an athlete, most most athletes don't live in the gray area. So you need it's very black and white. Tell me what to do. Tell me how high to jump, and I'll jump. That kind of philosophy. So I get in there, and I'm, I meet with the therapist for the first time, and I'm like, so yeah, I, I've got this thing, this eating thing, and you know, I'm hoping you know one or two sessions, and we'll be good. And just tell me what I got to do. Like I'm I'm ready. Put me in, coach. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's two weeks, and next thing I know. 24 weeks later um, of intensive outpatient therapy, it was such a slow transition of trying to reintroduce foods and realizing how scared I was to eat certain foods. All of a sudden, it's like, wait, I can have ice cream? Like, I haven't had ice cream in six years. And now, all of a sudden, I'm going to have it, but then not finish the entire box. And, you know, portion control and actually eating normally throughout the day, like consistently throughout the day and not avoiding meals. You know, I showed up the first week and it's like, oh, I had eggs today. She's like, how many? I'm like, two. She's like, okay, that's great. Next week, let's have three and a piece of toast. And you're like, no, let's not do that. So it was such a slow transition, but ultimately something now that I look back on and I'm so grateful I went through it, but it was a, it was 
long and monotonous. Do you remember a meal or a time when you felt like you had turned the corner and, and that you weren't stuck in your head about food the same way? I do. Yeah, I was actually, um, I went to go visit one of my best friends in back home and I remember being at his kid's birthday party and I got done with it. And I looked back and was like, whoa, I had cake. I enjoyed myself. I was actually having conversations and not the whole time thinking about food. And I kind of got through and, and I was done with the day and was just like, this is what life's like. And for people that don't have an eating disorder, they're like, yeah, like that's fine. But when you are so consumed about calories or what you're eating and and if you understand what that feels like, then there it's hard to picture a life where you're not consistently thinking about what your next meal is and how that meal is going to affect your dinner and all that kind of stuff where I literally felt like I was living a scientific equation of calories and in and out. Um, so that feeling of when I got done with the day and I looked back and it was like, dude, I enjoyed today. Like it was the first time that that kind of broke through for me. And it was probably the most relieving feeling ever looking back on. When do you break your silence and start to become an advocate on the subject? That, yeah, that was a very interesting time. And I think looking back, um, it was something I had always wanted to do only because when I was going through it, like if you look at sports and you're like, Oh, I want to be a professional athlete. Okay. Well, you're a quarterback. I'm going to look at Tom Brady. What does he do? Right? Like that's your idol. That's who you look up to mentor, not personally your mentor, but you kind of look up to him. When I was transitioning and, and realizing I had an eating disorder, the one thing I realized is there was no male to relate to. The only male out there that was speaking about it was Mark Cuban's brother and Brian Cuban. And he's still an advocate about eating disorders, but he's also a successful attorney and his brother's Mark Cuban. So there was something for right, wrong, or different. I couldn't relate to that. And I just remember looking around being like, where is somebody that can just be like, dude, stop worrying about what you're eating so much and stop, you know, if you miss a day at the gym, it's okay, right? Like there isn't that. And social media is the exact opposite. So I went through this transition of like, this needs to happen, whether it's me or somebody, I don't know, but like, why aren't males talking about this? And you only find the opposite. It's only females that are talking about it. And at the time I was working with a, actually a CU alumni, um, Adam Bornstein and one of my best friends and he was one of my biggest mentors and he we sat down and really had to talk about it and was like you know he has a platform on social media about you know health in general and I think he does a really good job of providing um, fitness advice but not in a extreme way and a very science-based approach and um, it kind of allowed me an opportunity to come out and start speaking about it so it started with an article that eventually the article led to a podcast that led to a speaking engagement that led to, and just kind of, again, for right, wrong, or different, being the only male, but a male athlete talking about eating disorders, it quickly evolved. And I just started getting phone calls to go speak some at these places, I, whether it was because of me as a speaker or my story or any of that kind of stuff. But I think it was a fresh voice in a very saturated market of dominantly women so to hear that story from an, an athlete's perspective, especially because there's no data behind males and eating disorders. So, um, yeah, it all started literally sitting down around a table talking with Adam about, is this something I really want to talk about? And it meant that much to me because there was no one for me to look up to. Once you started talking on the subject, were you surprised that 
male eating disorders are less rare than maybe you had anticipated when you started talking about it? Yeah, I mean, I what's crazy looking back on, especially for athletics, is I'll I'll say it now, and I still talk about it all the time, but is how actually common they are, but society and especially being an athlete, how commonplace they are, right? Like I'll go into, I always want to call it Dow Ward, but I'll go into the champion center now. And if you just sit back and watch the athletes and, and see, and I think they do again, such an amazing job up there now as more and more science has come out about it and evidence about eating disorders and, and a balanced approach in nutrition and nutrition and training for an athlete. But especially in a town like Boulder where such extreme athletes, Olympians and football players and any team that you have there, um, calorie restriction and clean eating and a lot of the habits and everyday routines of somebody with an eating disorder is so dominant. And I think the tricky part is, honestly, I don't know how you reach elite athletics without diving into those. How do you, how can you just tell an athlete? Yeah. Dude, if you want to go have Chick-fil-A or pizza tonight, like go, go do it. It was like, all you know is to eat clean and you need that. And don't get me wrong. I definitely think there's so many vitamins and nutrients that you need to have. Um, but mentally, what is that going to do to you and how does that set you up in the long run? So I think it's way more common, but it's more socially acceptable for men. And a huge reason for that again is there's no physical signs that really take over for a woman. It becomes very, very evident pretty quick. A lot of women will lose their period and these other things that are triggers and kind of like clues for doctors to be like, Whoa, okay, maybe you're not eating enough for men. It's dude, just have another coffee. Like, yeah, you feel terrible. You're low on energy, all this stuff, but you're working out all the time. Like it makes sense. So it's easily disguised. And, um, so it's a, it's a tricky thing. And especially in athlete, elite athletics. And I have to say it is when people start mixing in performance enhancing drugs, right? Cause then all of a sudden if you're on steroids, it's a much different your physique wise, your body, a lot of things are changing the way they shouldn't. So it becomes even more difficult to diagnose and address. But that's why I always talk about that mental aspect of if you're avoiding foods and there's this stress and you're always thinking about it, that's an eating disorder. It wasn't that I was any of the physical signs. You recently gave a speech at TEDxCU. What was that whole experience like? Oh, man, I didn't know what I signed up for. I thought <laughs> I, like, I watch more TED Talks than probably anybody I know. And you, you, you know, I sat there. I'm like, hey, this is cute, man. They're up there. They're on the little red circle and they just let it rip and they're just talking for a little while. And I remember auditioning and, and I was, I don't know how I came across it, but I realized there was a TEDx CU and I was just like, if there was an opportunity to ever talk at a TEDx I'm in, but let alone back at CU, that would just mean the world to me. And I go audition and then, um, it was a pretty rigorous, like tryout for a lack of an interview process and I get accepted and I get the email and it was like, congratulations in bold font. And then the next one says, uh, before you get too excited, understand that you're committing to a hundred to 150 hours of preparation. And I was like, what? Yeah. Okay. Like I've done this before. I, you know, I talk, but it's not a big deal. I'm fine. I don't have an issue standing up on stage. And then I quickly realized like I had to, it's a, the entire script is memorized and you have to write out the script. And generally when I talk, I don't prepare for anything. It's just my story. So now they're asking, I went through like 10 edits, like full blown rewrites of my talk to then memorizing word for word. There's no teleprompter. There's nothing. 
and what ended up being a 17 minute talk. And I think it was like 22 pages over a four month period that just really consumed my life. So it went from really like, this is cute. Like I, this, I think would be a lot of fun and a, and a real bucket list item to just get up and talk at a TEDx stage and not realizing what I had signed up for. Uh, but it was probably the, one of the best experiences of my life and so intense. It felt like game day. Again, I woke up the next morning. It was just, <laughs> I got them playing against West Virginia. Um, was just so exhausted and relieved and all the above. But yeah, it was such a tremendous opportunity. So grateful for them and that staff and that platform. What is your, your goal as you continue to shed light on this topic? Have you put much thought into where you want to go now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that's evolving. As of right now, I, it's really just a straight advocacy role and trying to raise awareness around it again going through it and not having anybody else to look up to and realize like okay one men deal with this but two somebody's been through it understands it was an athlete i get all the pressures i've i've lived it firsthand but more importantly um i think the hardest part of recovery when i was going through therapy was i spent 99 percent of my time trying to convince people i had an issue right like it was such it was something that I went through in such isolation and didn't really tell anybody about because I couldn't really describe what was happening as far as mentally always thinking about food and adjusting my life around that kind of stuff. But again, I quote unquote, I looked great. Everyone would see me as a hard worker, dedicated in the gym, going to the office, blah, 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 eating clean and getting applauded for that. So when I was going through recovery, I was like, dude, you're fine. Like what's been wrong with you? There's what are you talking about? You don't have an eating disorder. And then like going into the symptoms and, and doing that consistently day in and day out was so draining. And it really was just a gap in a lack of understanding and a lack of people talking about it to really understand. Cause unless again, unless you're that 60 pound female, like people just like, what are you talking about? You know, there's nothing wrong. And so being able to just kind of be that voice and honestly also being able to speak up for athletes. I don't, I don't have playing time. I'm not, we've already talked about like, I'm not going back and playing under Tucker anytime soon. So being able to go in and say like, look, this is where something works. It doesn't work. You know, if you, I had a program come to me and say, yeah, we're doing such amazing work with mental health and we put our team therapist right next to the locker room. And it's also right next to the meeting room and the coach's office. So somebody has something going on, boom they're right there they can go meet with the therapist and and the counselors and you're you know they were so excited about that and on paper that sounds great and i had to tell them like that's also the longest 10 feet any athlete's ever going to make no one is going to go in there unless the team therapist is on the other side of boulder on the other side of wherever they will not want to be seen walking into that office so being in a position now where it's like, I don't have skin in the game. Like I want to help and only help, but be able to provide that honest feedback. Uh, that's kind of where I'm finding a lot of my time and passion going to right now. You live here in Colorado. What else is going on in your life these days? Yeah. So yeah, I'm back in, uh, back in Denver, um, escaped to Boulder as much as I can have a, uh, an amazing group of friends, an amazing girlfriend and work doing commercial real estate, but I've also actually gotten involved and I'm on the board for bus for life. Um, who Sean Tufts is the infamous Sean Tufts and already referenced him for his Forbes, but obviously he was a tremendous CU buff. Um, and unfortunately CU has had, um, a lot of issues around mental health and, you know, I, I speak out about eating disorders, but again, I think that loss of identity, we've had 
whether it's Rashawn or Drew Walrus or any of those guys that have committed suicide, suicide wasn't a far-fetched thing for me um, going through that desperation, isolation, all that kind of stuff of just you were once running out in front of 100,000 fans, king of the world, to all of a sudden now I was filling water at a restaurant as a host, right? And so see you and um, Bus for Life has really brought about a huge initiative to try to help ex-athletes, doesn't matter what sport. Um, and that has been such a fun passion project, raising awareness, trying to get help for the guys, you know, especially in such a, uh, for football, a male-dominated mentality of like, dude, I'm fine, everything's good, and then little do we know what's happening behind the scenes. So trying to really reconnect, bring buffs back together. We have a big event coming up with uh, Bus for Life weekend and the golf tournament and all that kind of stuff. So it's been a lot of work, a lot of fun, and, and Sean and Coach Barnett um, is <laughs> the kind of spearheading the whole thing along with Coach Cabral. So to have those guys and those mentors around has just been so fun to be back around them. And, um, yeah, that's been a huge passion project of mine and being around Buffs again. How can CU fans get involved with that? Can they go on the website and donate to Buffs for Life? Yeah, it's it's actually we just launched our new website um, kind of promoting. We launched a new hotline here in uh, Colorado um, for any athletes or anyone that's struggling with you know, potentially committing suicide. And we partner with them. And in doing that, we revamped our website and you go to busforlife.org and uh, you can either sign up for the golf tournament, which is uh, in June or July, which I had the actual date on me, but it's coming up. So you could sign up for a foursome. We have a 5K run um, and you can also just donate on the website as well. Have you had a chance to see enough of the Mel Tucker era buffs to, to have an opinion here with the, the new staff taking over there? Man, I love it. Uh, luckily, you know, I am fortunate enough and, and they see you as doing such an amazing job of allowing ex-athletes and really inviting ex-athletes, um, ex-football players back around the program. But obviously one of my my guy, my little, I feel like he's like my little brother, but John Van Deest, uh, talking to him and, and hearing what they're saying about Tucker and that I just only way I could really equate it is that SEC mentality and what you think about the SEC. And uh, he is such a, in my opinion, Coach Tucker, such a soft-spoken man out of any time I've ever heard him speak. But he's also the coach you don't want to mess with. Like, I'm around him, and I'm like, dude, he's going to tell me to go run, you know, gassers right now. I'm scared. Like, hey, coach, I'm super proper around him. Um, but he's such a good guy. And to hear the validation from, you know, Coach Cabral, who was one of my biggest mentors and obviously a, a huge CU buff for life, um, could not speak more highly of Coach Tucker and the staff. And that to me is <laughs> speaks a lot because Cabral is not an easy guy to win over. And uh, so everything I've heard, I am beyond hopeful. Obviously, I think programs, doesn't matter who you are, it's very rare someone comes in and the next year they're undefeated. Um, and that may be possible. I don't know. But it's a tough league, um, a tough place to recruit against and all the above. But I think they're making huge strides in the right direction. And um, I'm so excited to see what, what the future holds. Awesome. Well, Patrick, it was great catching up with you. I really admired you as a player when you were up at CU and, and obviously admire what you've been doing here since uh, your playing career ended. Thank you so much. Again, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated all you've done for the program and to have a chance to come on here and, and speak with you. It's such a pleasure to be back.
Awesome. We'll have to do this again sometime. Yes, please. Also, a big thank you to Urban Mattress and Centennial for hosting this podcast. Again, you can use GoBuffs there to receive 20% off your purchase if you're in the market for a mattress. Thanks to all of you for tuning in.